Well, last Sunday we celebrated what I believe to be, and I know a number of you do as well, the greatest event the world has ever experienced, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, were it not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul made it quite clear that we would, of all people, be most pitied, especially those of us that gather here in this auditorium on a Sunday like today, celebrating the risen Christ. What if he would have stayed in the grave? We would be, as the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, they pitied people. In 1874, a Baptist minister named Robert Lowry penned one of the most stirring hymns to ever exalt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you probably grew up singing this. It's called, Low in the Grave He Lay. I used to love that hymn. Notice how these verses contrast the death and suffering with the resurrection power of Christ. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watch his bed. Jesus, my Savior, vainly they seal the dead. Jesus, my Lord, death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. That's awesome. Death, man's most dreaded enemy, and is that not it? I I heard uh, just a couple of weeks ago, this man on TV, he said, I'm convinced I'm going to live forever. And I thought, you are. We all are going to live forever, but we will exit this earth if the trumpet doesn't blow. Death is our worst enemy, but it's powerless to reign over the Lord of life. And that truth has significance for you and I this morning, here and now, right here, 2,000 years later. The most exciting and rousing part of Lowry's hymn, the refrain that punctuates each stanza, up from the grave he arose. When I was a kid, I thought the next line, with a mighty triumph or his nose. I don't know, you know, that, that, that's not it, all right? It's a, with a mighty triumph or his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Do you see in those lines what the resurrection means for you and for me? Because Jesus conquered both death and sin, Because he rose from the grave demonstrating that conquering, we can rejoice in the fact that we will too one day rise again. And if you're here this morning like me and you have lost a loved one, somebody that's gone on before you that has been very significant in your life and you know that they died in Christ, you rejoice greatly over that truth, do you not? That's a great point for an amen right there, even at the 9 o'clock service. Do you not rejoice over that fact? That death is no longer the victor, that Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead gives us the victory. And ever since the early Christians met secretly in homes to remember the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church has been celebrating what we refer to as communion or the Lord's table. I read this story this week and I wanted to read it to you this morning. A church had an unusual ritual every Sunday morning before the church sang the doxology They would all stand together, and as they stood together, everyone would turn to the right, and they would face a blank white wall, and they'd sing. Every Sunday, they they did this, and finally, a visitor to the church was confused, and he asked somebody, why do you do this? Not only did that person not know, nobody in the congregation knew why they did that. The only answer they could come up with was, we've always done it this way. 
But that answer did not satisfy the visitor, and so other people asked the same question, but they didn't know. And finally, an elderly man who had been coming to the church for a long time, had been a member probably longer than anyone else, he remembered the reason. It seems that one time they didn't have hymnals, and the words to the song, to the doxology, were printed on that white wall. And so because they didn't have words, they didn't have a a video projector or anything, they would all turn to the right, and they would sing from the words off of the white wall. But over the years, the words faded and the wall was repainted numerous times, yet no one remembered the significance for standing and turning toward the wall. So to that very day, when it came time to sing the doxology, they all stood up, they faced to the right, and sang to a blank white wall. I believe that many times we do exactly the same thing in our life. We do things for the wrong reasons, or we do things and we don't even remember or know why we do them. Because no one's ever stopped to ask why. We develop habits and we develop traditions. Churches across America are full of churches that are steeped in traditions. Some of them not bad. Rituals, some of them not bad, some of them good. But for some reason, many things that we do, we have absolutely no idea why we do them because we have little or no information. And you know, of all the things that we do in the church, the one event that should hold the most, most meaning for us, and, and I believe as one of your pastors should be very well taught, and we ought to understand why we do it, and that is the message behind a communion service, why we will celebrate communion here in just a few moments. I think far too often the communion celebration is looked upon as being commonplace, and it's just something that we do every few months, and in reality it's far more than that. This time that we call communion is a time for us to gather together as the church and to worship the Lord by remembering the sacrifice that he made for us at Calvary and at his resurrection. And every time we participate in the Lord's table, remember this, it is a sermon about the cross. It is really a sermon that's being preached. It's a, it's a, it's a picture that's, that's, that's being portrayed without necessarily any words behind it. That's what we get from the Lord's table. You'll remember, some of you will remember, some of you maybe don't understand this, but communion was originally instituted by Jesus. If we were to go back, in fact, if you want to, you can take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29, where Jesus is with his disciples on the night of the Passover meal. That was an annual occurrence that celebrated the passing over of the angel of death that claimed the firstborn of every house in Egypt in Exodus 12. But the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or communion as we know it this morning in our church replaces the Passover meal with the body and the blood of Jesus. Mark chapter 14 verses 22 to 24. Paul wrote in fact to the church at Corinth and we use it very often when we are at the table, in fact, I will this morning, he instructed the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're not familiar with that text, as you have some time, I would challenge you to go and read not only verses 23 to 34, but, but read the larger context of what Paul is saying there to the church at Corinth. But he says several things, and we've been trying to emphasize these things in our communion services uh, over the last several months, and we will do so for the next several months going in to November. It is a table of remembrance. We remember the Lord's death. It's proclamation. It's proclaiming the Lord's death and and what the Lord's death means to us. Today we're going to talk just briefly about it being a, a table of fellowship. 
It is a table of self-examination. We're going to do that here in just a few moments. It's a table of expectation. When we celebrate the Lord's table, we are to remember his death but look forward to his soon coming. And then lastly, and we'll talk about this at our Thanksgiving service in November, it is a table of thanksgiving. The idea of fellowship for our conversation here this morning is fairly simple in most churches. Some of you are church people, right? Some of you aren't church people. Some of you are exploring the claims of Christ on your life. You're new followers of Jesus, and you don't know all this terminology. In fact, on a regular basis, I say things, and you go, I don't have a clue what he just said, right? And I kind of have to explain it a little bit, and that's good, that's great, that's awesome. That's why it's really healthy to have young, new, fresh life and and baby Christians uh, in our midst. But some of you are very familiar with this word fellowship. You grew up going to church, and you know what fellowship is. And when I say fellowship, immediately there are things that come to your mind. You think, just give us a cup of coffee and a donut, and and we got fellowship, right? That's your idea of fellowship. Or uh, give us a potluck, whatever that is. I'm not really sure what that is. You know, I'm I'm convinced, at least for the church, it ought to be Pop Providence or something like that. But the luck thing, I don't, I'd really love to know where that all came from. But maybe that's fellowship, right? We always did fellowship at a what? At a pot luck or a covered dish. Covered dish. I never understood the covered dish thing, too. So you couldn't bring a dish unless it was covered. But when we had a covered dish, that meant that there was fellowship. And we typically do that where? In a typical traditional church, we do it in a fellowship hall. A fellowship hall. There's a warm terminology, right? A fellowship hall. In my church growing up, that's where we went for watered-down red punch. That's where we had stale cookies. And that's where I grew up thinking that is what fellowship is all about. For some of you, especially those of you who just giggled, you, you did the same thing, right? You still remember the fellowship hall. All fellowship halls across America, across the world, no doubt, have the same smell and the same stuff is served in them. That's your idea of fellowship. I want to tell you just briefly this morning, and I told Bill, it's not usually good for me to do these communion things. That's why I usually have the elders do these things because like, they only want to speak just a brief time, and, and I'm a 35, 40-minute guy, so this is really tough for me, all right? But I want to just real quickly build out for you, and I mean just real quickly, I'd love for us at a later time to talk about this rich word, fellowship, but the word that we translate most in the English New Testament, fellowship, is from a Greek word that we know as koinonia. It comes from a a root word, uh, a Greek word koinos, which means common or mutual or public. It refers to that which is held in common. Now, there were two main ideas with this word. It meant, it meant that they, they shared together, they would take part together. That was in the sense of partnership or participation, and they would share with as well. That's what fellowship meant. So therefore, you know, back to our, some of our traditions, that whole potluck thing and bringing the covered dish, that was a good thing, right? Because that, that helped us fellowship. We, we shared with one, one another. In the New Testament, what is shared in common is shared, first of all, because of a common relationship that we all have together in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your personal Savior, then we can fellowship because we have something in common, and that is the common relationship that we have in Christ. We can fellowship because we first have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we share him in common. 
In fact, the New English Bible translates 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3 as follows. What we've seen and heard we declare to you so that you and we together may share in a common life, that life which we share with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the true basis, that's the true foundation for fellowship. You may be able to have a good time in your workplace with your co-workers who don't know Christ or in your neighborhood with your neighbors who don't know Christ, but you can only experience true biblical fellowship with those who have experienced along with you new life in Christ. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that we would fellowship together. That whole idea of the Lord's table means that we, we come together and we and we share together as we break this bread and we share this juice here in just a few moments. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the early church wasn't merely devoting themselves to activities like some of our churches are today, but they were very committed, as we are here at Northwest, to relationship. It was their relationship because of who they were as brothers and sisters in Christ that produced an active sharing in other ways. And it's so important that we grasp that. So important that we grasp that not just during communion, but as a church as a whole, that, that that is what we share in common. That's why we exist. It isn't just so that we can just do a bunch of stuff together. We literally share all things together because of that common relationship we have in Jesus Christ. So when we come to the Lord's table, we come to a table of fellowship. It's for those of us that have trusted in Christ alone as our Savior. And I want you to understand this morning that we participate together because of our common relationship as brothers and sisters and as sons and daughters of God. And we come to remember what? We remember the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that pro provides the foundation for our common cause, which is what? Which is the mission of the gospel. That's our partnership. We, we fellowship because of a common relationship and because of a common cause. And that cause, that mission, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is such an awesome thing to be in fellowship with one another. To share a common relationship and a common cause. And we celebrate that as we come to the table. And unfortunately, it's very common for us to come to the communion table in a ritualistic manner. Depending on the background that you came from, a service like this could be very just simply ritualistic to you. Something that you did and, and, and you could just do it almost in your sleep. As a priest would stick a wafer on your tongue as you would drink out of a chalice uh, some wine or some grape juice. And unfortunately, we have a habit of doing it as a ritual, in a ritualistic manner rather than participating with our minds and with our hearts. We can go through the motions without any emotion and treat it lightly rather than seriously. And I want to tell you this morning that when we come into a communion service like this, I hope that you take it very, very seriously. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 makes it very clear that we should do just that. And we'll look at that in a few months because it is a table of examination. I believe that it's very common for many of us to come into a service like this and you've had a rough week, you've lived in the in the real world, in a workplace for some of you that's not really that great. And, and you come in here with a spirit of bitterness. You, you maybe woke up this morning and you've already had a fight with your spouse or one of your kids or something like that. Or, 
or you just kind of hold a little bit of a grudge towards maybe somebody in your family right now, or maybe even as you came into an auditorium, you looked at a person and you were reminded of what you don't like about them and why they frustrate you and how they made you mad at the last uh, potluck. No, not really. That probably isn't too common. We have a habit of coming in like that and then all of a sudden just thinking, well, we can just kind of block that out and we'll just uh, drink the, uh, the cup and, and eat the bread. That's not a good thing. There are some things that you should remember as we come to the communion table. First of all, you shouldn't take communion if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You know, you know it's, it's very easy in a church, I think, sometimes for us to go, well, that'd be really embarrassing, you know, as that tray's passed and as I don't take that cup. I have, ever since we started Northwest, I've longed for a place where people felt free not to take communion. Now you go, well, that's really strange. You're like, why would you want a church where people didn't feel... Because if you've ever been in a church where... You just look up and down the aisles, and as a pastor, I have a great vantage point, right? Because I can typically see just up and down the aisles, and I'm going, wow, what, what an awesome group of people. Everybody is right with Jesus. That's awesome. That's good. No bitterness, no anger, no hatred, no everybody's just right with Jesus. I'm not sure that that's always true. One of the coolest things, and I know some of you will not understand this, but one of the coolest things over the years since we've planted Northwest has been literally when I'm looking at our flock as we take communion and I see people that I know are Christ followers that let the cup pass by because they know that right at the moment they are not in fellowship with Jesus, that their heart is still not properly aligned with Jesus. That's an okay thing to do. If you don't know Jesus, you shouldn't take communion. But if you're not properly aligned right now, you shouldn't take communion. If there's somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven, I don't think you ought to take communion. Now you say, well, can I forgive them? And absolutely, absolutely. We said since our first communion service here at Northwest, we wanted to provide an environment where during communion you could actually get up right where you are and you could just go to somebody. I've seen that from time to time here at Northwest. I love that. And you could just say, hey, forgive me for that. This is a time of confession for us. And don't take communion if you're just distracted if you can't focus on what it is that we're doing here this morning and you're thinking about things you're going to do this afternoon or the roast in the oven and did you, did you set the timer, did you turn it on, did you, and, and that's really where your heart is and where your mind is right now, you do well to let the cup pass by. We need to focus on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was an incredible sacrifice that was made for my sin and for your sin at the cross. What a great trade that was made. My sin for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I read this week, I don't know where I've been. Maybe some of you saw it before, but I just saw it this week. A lot of you have probably never heard of a guy named Kyle McDonald. Kyle's mission was to trade one red paper clip for an entire house. Some of you have seen that show, uh, Barter Kings. I think it's called Barter Kings. It's on TV where they're, they never use any cash. They just trade one item for another. This guy got this idea, and he started with a red paper clip, and he said, I want to trade a red paper clip ultimately for a house. And before you think he's crazy, let me just tell you that you should know that if you Google it, he did it. He succeeded. He started in July a few years ago. He found someone who would trade in a fish-shaped ink pen for his red paper clip. I'd probably make that trade if you had a fish-shaped ink pen. From there, he was off and running. He traded the ink pen for a hand-sculpted doorknob, and he just kept on trading. Each time, he traded up for something bigger and better. Some of the trades included a Honda generator, which he received from a U.S. Marine, a snowmobile, ultimately a large truck, an afternoon with Alice Cooper. I'm not sure I'd have made that trade for the paperclip, but, you know, depending on 
you know, if you're a fan, a movie role, until finally, after 43 trades, Kyle traded for a two-story farmhouse. It took him almost a year exactly to turn one red paper clip into a house. I read that this week, and I thought, you know, that's really awesome. I mean, man, some of you young couples especially that don't have your, your first home yet and you're still renting, man, <laughs> there's an idea, right? You just take the red paper clip and ultimately get a two-story farmhouse. And I'm thinking, you think, man, that's got to be the greatest trade ever. And as I'm reading about it after just celebrating Easter Sunday last week, I thought, man, that is so insignificant when compared to the trade that Jesus has made available for us, is it not? That we trade all of our sin, all of our disappointment, all of our disgusting failures and our disgusting sin that nobody knows but, but us and but the God of the universe. And he said, I'll take it all and I'll mark it to Telestai, paid in full. And here is my son Jesus and his innocent shed blood on a cross that will wipe away your sin debt. Hey, want to trade? That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And that, my friends, is what we celebrate here this morning. We ultimately, we celebrate the greatest trade in all of history. Not a red paper clip for a two-story farmhouse. The shed blood, the innocent blood of Jesus on a cross for your sin and for my sin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of now remembering your death, as Scripture says, until you come. God, thanks for offering that trade. We would, were it not for that, we would be a very, very pitied people here this morning. But because of the cross of Calvary, <laughs> we've experienced those of us who are trusting in Christ alone. We've experienced new life in Jesus Christ. We are effectively able to live what John said, and that is life abundantly, life to the max, because our sin debt has been marked paid in full because of Jesus' death on the cross. And God, that is why we celebrate here this morning. In Jesus' name.